Hello and welcome back to Cover to Cover, where today our subject is again the author Elena Ferrante. Back in January, we published episodes about volumes one and two of My Brilliant Friend. Today, we're talking about volumes three and four, and more generally about Ferrante as a writer, about her themes, her vision, and about reactions to her work. It seems strange. But when Ferrante's books first appeared in Italy, she was panned by the majority of literary critics. Her compatriots reproached her on several accounts. They complained that her stories were dull and trivial. They complained that her writing had no literary depth, that it lacked colour and density, that her style was too flat. One woman critic wrote that there was nothing new in Ferrante. She compared Ferrante to the Sicilian author Leonardo Ciasia and the investigative author Roberto Saviano, saying, There is nothing new, nothing revealing in Ferrante's stories of violence and gangrene in the Italian South. In her stories of, of violence handed down from generation to generation, because that topic has already been well covered in work ranging from Sia Sia to Saviano. <laughs> but Ferranti's stories are not stories of violence handed down from generation to generation. They are primarily stories about women, about their struggles to take possession of their own lives, about how they liberate themselves. Sia's story, The Day of the Owl, is terrific. It's an excellent depiction of a man battling the Camorra, but there are no female characters to speak of in that story. It's an entirely male world the female experience is not represented in any way. In Roberto Saviano's most famous book, Gomorra, about the Neapolitan mafia, the Camorra, there is indeed a chapter devoted to women, but that is one chapter in a canvas of a male world. To me, it is sad and frankly alarming that an Italian female critic was unable to grasp that Ferranti's subject is women's experience and women's emancipation. Let's talk for a moment about style. In one sense, I understand the criticisms of Ferrante's style in relation to My Brilliant Friend. Certainly not The Lost Daughter, which is an, a polished jewel. But in relation to My Brilliant Friend, I do, because those four volumes are not what I would call quotable books. What I mean is they are not books that are stuffed with memorable phrases. The sentences have not been etched with extreme care for their sound and shape. But to understand why this is so, I think we need to listen to what Ferrante herself has said about authenticity. Appartengo alla categoria di chi butta via la bella copia, 
e salva la brutta, se questa assicura maggiore autenticità. I belong to the category of writers who throw away the beautiful, polished version and keep the ugly version, provided that this ensures greater authenticity. In the My Brilliant Friends series, the author is primarily concerned with story, with narrative drive, with authenticity of character and with authenticity of voice. Energy is spent propelling the narrative forward rather than injecting phrases with brilliant effects. More to the point, authenticity, it seems to me, means being faithful to the voice that is telling the story. In this case, to the character and voice of Lenu, a young woman busily engaged in the struggle to find her path, to understand herself, to study, to write, all while raising her young daughters. The voice in which she tells the story is not a sophisticated voice, but it is a voice determined to capture the reality, the detail, and the impact of the events in which she and Leela are caught up, as well as the complicated threads, the shadows, and shade of their friendship. Take, for example, the scene in Volume 3, when Lenu goes to the apartment that her sister, Elisa, shares with Marcello Solara in order to remonstrate with her. Lenu is nonplussed to see her husband and daughters arrive to discover that she and her husband Pietro have been tricked into staying for dinner, a birthday dinner at which the guest of honour is Manuela Solara, the mother of the two Solara brothers. Lenu feels like she is being squeezed in a vice she can't swallow. And so the language is pressured. It is tensely descriptive. It is observational. It is on guard. Without her permission, the Solaras have transferred her family's suitcases from the hotel she had chosen to this apartment. She is furious about being duped into staying the night in an apartment that belongs to a criminal and a fascist. She is grieved. That is the word used in the English translation. She is grieved to see how her sister and her mother act in front of these criminals. This birthday dinner is yet another demonstration of male power, the viciously controlling power of the Solara brothers, power that is bent, among other things, on keeping women subordinate. As always, McKelly has an agenda. As always, he is casually cruel towards his wife. He takes charge. He forces Lenu to pay a ritual compliment to his mother. The children play while the adults sit tensely around the dinner table. And the characterization by Ferrante never falters. Lenu is astonished to see Leela enter 
to see her within these four walls. But Leela just squints her eyes at her. She is resolved to get through this evening. We hear her slight intake of breath and frustration when Gigliola refuses to hand over the German translation of Lenu's book. When Michele vaunts his agreement with Leela, we see Leela rise from the table and acquiesce in his little ceremony. But there is an edge of irony in her voice underneath everything that adamantine refusal to be subjugated is still there. Meanwhile, Manuela Solara fans herself with a blue fan on which there is an image of Mount Vesuvius as though fending off an eruption, fending off questions about her sordid business practices, beating the air to keep away for another night the angels of death that are hunting for her. This spare, descriptive prose nevertheless conjures up unforgettable images. This is a tough and dangerous environment. It is this environment that Lenu's voice must both register and resist. When Eleanor Ferrante was asked in an interview about her experience growing up in Naples, she said that it was a place where she continually felt at risk. Like Lenu, Ferrante, the author, experienced Naples with revulsion. She ran away as soon as she could. And indeed, one of the images that no reader of My Brilliant Friend ever forgets is that moment in volume one when the Solaras try to get Lenu into their car and Leela holds a knife against Marcello's throat. In a rione like theirs, ferocious resistance is Leela's only option. When Ferrante's books were first published in Italy in the 1990s, one of the things that irritated many people was the author's decision to remain anonymous, to stay out of the public eye. Ferrante famously refuses to be interviewed. She decided from the outset that if her books were good enough, they would make their way in the world without her having to become a TV personality or appear in the pages of People magazines. Let's not forget that when Ferrante's first book came out, the person who dominated the Italian mediascape was Silvio Berlusconi, someone whose values are the antithesis of hers. Ferrante flat out refused to be caught up in the vulgarity of the Italian media and this refusal got right up the nose of many of her compatriots. Just who do you think you are? You do not want to be seen. You do not want to tell us if you have children, whether you have a man or not. You do not dedicate your books to anyone. You do not put thanks on the last page, not even a small photo of when you were younger. 
You don't want to go to literary cocktails, to drinks with the author? How come you don't sell to us along with your book Bits of You? Just who do you think you are? Frankly, the more I read of Eleanor Ferrante, not just the books, but her interviews, her letters, the more I am impressed by the high seriousness with which she approaches her calling. Her desire, many times repeated, is to usher into the world stories about women that are strong and true, that contain no lies. Remaining private allows her to preserve her creative space. As she sees it, the demand for self-promotion merely diminishes the work of art. The title of Volume 4 of My Brilliant Friend is The Story of the Lost Child. And the event referred to in the title is the horrific loss of Leela's daughter, Tina, who disappears off the street one hot Sunday without trace. Leela is stricken. She shuts herself into her apartment. She sickens. She develops a tumour in her uterus. It seems that her body is expressing both the loss of her child and the toxicity that the neighbourhood has always represented for her. Like Volume 3, Volume 4 moves between the 1970s and the first decade of this century. We see Lenu and Leela in their 30s, in their 40s, and then in their 60s. And as Lenu ages, she gradually moves closer to the view of life that Leela has always had, a vision of toxic gases boiling up like lava from under the ground, from the past. And indeed, like Leela, she no longer has any need of men. I have to admit that for me, as a male reader, it is sobering to acknowledge how dispensable males are in Ferranti's world. In their younger years, both Lila and Lenu felt the rush, the, the surge, the whoosh of romantic love, physical love with Nino the peacock in particular. But Nino revealed to each of them who and what he really was. And in the final reckoning of their lives, how much does he really count for? Frankly, not that much. Many of the men in this Violent world are thugs like Stefano and the Solaras. Others are dropouts like Leela's brother Reno, who dies of an overdose in a disused railway wagon. Or tragic misfits like Alfonso, beaten to death by homophobes. The only noble male character in My Brilliant Friend is Enzo, who loves Leela deeply and selflessly, but in the wake of Tina's disappearance, ultimately, there is no space 
left for Enzo in Lila's heart. As for Lenu's husband, Pietro, who has such a brilliant mind, his attitude to marriage is numbingly conventional. He has no notion of an independent career for his wife. He takes it for granted that she will be the homemaker. It's obvious to him that the woman must have the secondary role. To make things worse, he has no notion of female sexual pleasure. And so our two heroines progressively shed men, just as Leela had done in The Lost Daughter, just as Nina, the young mother in The Lost Daughter, will perhaps do in her turn. Towards the end of My Brilliant Friend, at the age of 66, acting on a desire that she has had for three decades, Leela disappears. Her clothes, her shoes, her books, her computer, everything disappears with her. She even cuts herself out of family photos. Nothing remains. At this time, Lenu, also, of course, in her 60s, is living alone in Turin. A sophisticated writer, she is now a semi-retired professional who likes to stroll over to the Paco del Valentino in the morning with her dog, sit there with a coffee and thumb through the newspapers. For the past month, she's been upset. Lila's son, Reno, has told her about his mother's disappearance, and this has both annoyed and disturbed her, stirring up the whole complicated tangle of their friendship. On this particular day, when she gets back to her apartment building with the dog, she discovers a package sitting on top of the mailboxes. It's roughly wrapped there's no address on it. It just has the words Eleanor Greco. I cautiously opened one end of the wrapping, and that was enough. Dina and Nu leaped out of memory even before I got them completely out of the newspaper. I immediately recognized the dolls that one after the other, almost six decades earlier, had been thrown. Mine by Lila, Lila's by me, into a cellar in the neighborhood. They were the dolls we had never found, although we had descended underground to look for them. They were the ones that Lila had pushed me to go and retrieve from the house of the terrible Don Achille. And Don Achille had claimed that he hadn't taken them. Lenu stops. She looks around. She looks at the porter's room. She looks up the corridor to see if her friend is still there, but there is no trace of Leela. The lobby is empty. I burst into tears. Here's what she had done. She had deceived me. She had dragged me wherever she wanted, from the beginning of our friendship. Or maybe not. 
Maybe those two dolls that had crossed more than half a century and had come all the way to Torino meant only that she was well and that she loved me. At the end of this amazing saga, what remains is female friendship in all its complexity. These are two women who at times hated each other, swore at each other, provoked each other, said harsh and hurtful things, ignored each other, even wished each other dead. But somehow their friendship has remained afloat and strong. That friendship was sealed when, after the doll's disappearance, they took each other by the hand and climbed the stairs to the apartment of Don Achille. And indeed for Lenu, far more than any relationship with a man, it is this friendship that has been the defining relationship of her life, teasing her, inspiring her, helping her forge her ambitions helping her measure her limitations, forcing her to face her fears. And it seems to me, again, that Ferrante's worldwide success proves that these stories about women needed to be told and needed to be heard. These are stories of struggle that deal, on the one hand, with the effort of these women to free themselves from violent and stifling environments, and on the other hand, to deal with the specific complications of the female experience, the tangled emotions, the unbearable absences. I have an image of Elena Ferrante as a child. It's an image that I derive mainly from Frantumaglia and from the days of abandonment. I see her playing with her sisters and her dolls. I see her venturing out nervously into the streets of the Rione. I see her climbing the stairs of their apartment building saying, Buongiorno, Signora, to the unhappy neighbour, the Poverella. And then crouching underneath the sewing table of her dressmaker mother listening to the sometimes salacious gossip of her mother's customers, hearing the sound of the sharp, dangerous but creative scissors, snip, snip, snipping, cut, cut, cutting, shape, shape, shaping, hearing her unhappy mother creating dresses the way she would later stitch and weave her own stories. <laughs> 